I have two water bottles. In Italy, you have to pay, like, for water everywhere. So I might actually take these back with me as a little souvenir from Grace Community Church. It is an incredible joy to be with all of you. I, I, I have, um, this, this weekend has been a bit interesting for me because um, it's been about a year since I've been back in the States uh, since the last, uh, last conference. And uh, today is my dad's 81st birthday. Uh, my, two, of my, uh, two of my three sisters are here uh, with me today. They, they live here in this area. And uh, I had the privilege of uh, going up and, and spending time with my family. My, my immediate family, my wife and my kids are back in Italy. But uh, spending time with uh, my parents and my, my siblings and their, their kids um, and I was just sitting there in the room thinking, like, what a joy it is to be around your family, you know? And when you're, when you're living far away, maybe some of you have had uh, this experience, you're living far away, and you just, when you're back with your family, there's this sense of connection. And, and I feel that again this morning, being here at Grace Community, that, this sense of what a joy it is to be singing songs to our Savior, to be worshiping together, to be, uh, to be hearing updates, to be seeing um, no longer kids, adults who used to be kids when I was here, when my hair wasn't gray and I had a little bit more of it, not a lot more, but a little bit more of it, and, and, and seeing, seeing them going forward in their life and building families and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. And, and I, just, I, I just have to say on behalf of my family, we count this as part of our family. We count this, 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 this family, this local church, as so incredibly dear to us. We have learned so much about what it means to be uh, followers of Jesus Christ, to live a life of grace, to, to interact as a husband and a wife and to parent and to build friendships uh, together uh, right here in this, in this church. Uh, in some ways, I would say this, this family, this local church family, it has been probably one of the most meaningful and impactful set of relationships uh, in my life. So I'm uh, incredibly grateful to be here uh, with all of you this morning and, and be able to be uh, sharing a little bit of an update as well as um, preaching God's Word. It is, it, it is an astounding privilege to be able uh, to do that. Um, as Jeremy said, uh, he, he gave you a quick thumbnail sketch um, of uh, uh, of uh, what our uh, what our life looks like and uh, why we moved to Italy. Um, we are a family. For those of you that uh, don't know us, we are a family of five. We have uh, two daughters who are sixteen and fourteen, and a son who is uh, ten. Uh, my wife and I have been married for twenty five years as of this year. Uh, we we lived in this area, then moved to Maryland, and then the Lord moved us to Italy. And uh, I can tell you that with each move, uh, we have uh, we have carried with us a, a gratitude for what the Lord is doing in the gospel uh, through the gospel. And um, and and that is our goal as we've moved to Italy is to see churches planted, not just not just churches planted, not just organizational um, entities put in a place where people gather and, you know, have some cookies together every once in a while and, and open the Bible every once in a while, but, but real gospel-centered communities where grace is being interchanged within the membership and people are going into their community to make the, the good news of Jesus known. So that is our, that is our goal. That is our, our plan. Uh, we're doing that in conjunction with a, a church plant team. There's a, another guy who's, uh, who, he actually just arrived yesterday in the States. He's in um, our 
our sister church in Marlton, New Jersey this morning. Uh, he's an Italian guy, and together we're co-planting the church, and we have some other folks that are part of the team. And, um, and as Jeremy said, it is an extremely needy country. People don't think of of Italy or Europe as being quite so needy. As, as Americans, we think of Europe as, a, as an incredible vacation spot. And it is. There's a lot of interesting history, a lot of art and things that are very cool to see and cool to do. But, but life there is, is um, it's, it, it can be difficult. Life can be like it is here. Um, and life is not imbued with a hope of the gospel. There are very, very few gospel preaching churches in particular in Italy. So the statistics, as Jeremy said, are uh, w- less than 1% of the church are, is, is evangelical. It's, it's, probably, it's probably less than half of a percent of the people. In a country of 70 million people, it's less than half of percent that even really understand what the gospel is. Um, so because of that, there's a lot of hardness towards um, towards the gospel, there's a lot of uh, religiousness, and we're going to talk about that a little bit in the message today. And we desperately need prayer. We desperately need partnership and relationship. So being here today is an incredible reminder that when I go back to Italy, when we're doing the work of church planting and reaching out to our neighborhood, I'm carrying all of you and what I've learned from all of you with me into a place that is extremely needy. So please do pray. Pray for our church. Pray for the other churches around the world as we're praying for the persecuted church. Pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be the thing that we keep right at the center, and that's the thing that we we preach and proclaim until he returns. May we be focused on that and that alone. Well, that's a, a little bit of uh, an update. I do, as I said, I, I send greetings on behalf of uh, our little church plant team in uh, Torino, Italy, uh, as well as more specifically on behalf of my family. Um, and we are going to be looking together in uh, Romans chapter 10 today. So you could go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We're going to be looking at some very familiar verses uh, in uh, chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. And as you're turning there, um, I just want to share a little bit of a, an opening story to kind of help uh, set, the, set the table here. Uh, recently, my son and I were walking. We were actually on the way to school. Uh, he's, his school is a couple blocks away from our, our house, and we were walking, and, uh, and he said, Dad, how do brakes work? And I said, well, you press the big rectangle pedal and the car stops. And he said, yeah, I, well, I know that, but how do they, like, actually work? He's a little bit like his old man. He, he likes to figure stuff out. He's a, got a little bit of an engineering brain. So it, it was just, it was just a, a wonderful opportunity to, to, to explain a little bit more of the details of how car brakes work. So what I did is I broke it down into a series of steps describing what happens when you press that big rectangle pedal. And of course, if any of you, those of you who know me know that this, um, this just didn't stop there. It led into a wonderfully geeky discussion about regenerative braking and how uh, elect- electric and hybrid uh, vehicles take advantage of uh, the friction and the, the, the kinetic energy, and they convert that into, and Seth could probably explain it way better, um, it, uh, uh, but uh, got into a, a great little discussion about uh, how braking works and, and how that's actually even being uh, advanced upon in the future of vehicles. Now, the reason I share that little story is because at five, the first expl- explanation would have just done great for him. You just press the big rectangle pedal. He would have been totally fine with that at five years old. 
But now at 10, he wants to understand things a little bit more profoundly. He wants to get into the details a little bit more. And he, he, he kind of pushes back and asks questions. Well, well, if that's true, what about this? And well, if that, if it works that way, what do you do with that? So, and, and I find myself having discussions like that, that all of the time with him. He's very inquisitive. Today in the text that we're looking at, Paul is kind of doing that for us. He's, he's unpacking things and, and breaking down gospel advance in a series of, of steps. And in Romans uh, chapter 10, verses 14 through 17, he's, he's showing us the mechanics of how the gospel of Jesus advances. And if I were to summarize this little section of scripture into one sort of succinct statement, the, the main point, I would say this is kind of what this section teaches. The section teaches that the gospel spreads as redeemed people are sent to preach salvation through faith in Jesus. It's very simple, very easy, nothing earth-shattering in what I just said. The gospel spreads as redeemed people are sent to preach salvation through faith in Jesus. Nothing probably shocks anybody in the room of what I just said. However, as we think about that, as we grasp that, that what this implies, as we grasp the teaching that Paul is giving to us in these four verses, uh, verses 14 through 17, we will be more focused and more fruitful in spreading the gospel as we understand it better. And there's nothing more important or needed than the advance of the good news of Jesus Christ. There's, there's nothing that this world needs more. That this world does not need the election cycle. This world does not need our pundits on the news, the airwaves telling us how to think. This world does not need more psychology and more books written. The world does not need uh, many of the things that the world says that the world needs. What the world needs It's not love, sweet love. The world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we understand how the gospel is to go forward, we will bring the most valuable and needed thing, more needed than ever, into this world. In this last year and a half, even the the time leading up to our relocation to Italy, I think if, if I would say, what's the thing that I want more and more for the remainder of my life than anything else? It would be to be more effective in making Jesus known and see more fruit for his glory. And this text helps us to see just how to do that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this text and then I'm going to pray and ask the Spirit to help us. And then we're going to get into this text first by looking at some context, then looking more specifically at the text, and then looking at application. So would you read together with me? This is God's holy and blessed word. Let's, let's read Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17 together. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, you are so good to us to give us your word. In your word, you reveal to us your character and your plans and your, your heart, your intentions. Without your word, Lord God, we would be lost. Jesus, word incarnate, thank you that you came and you lived, not just lived out the word of God, but you, you continued to reveal the heart of God to us perfectly so that we might see what it is, what it is that is motivating God to, to pursue us through you. And Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that you open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus so that we might understand more the character of God. And you are with us and you comfort us and you teach us and you equip us and you strengthen us and you go with us and you will never leave us or forsake us. So we stand on that promise now that you will never lead us nor forsake us, you, that you will, you will be with us to the end of the age. And we ask that you would teach us now, Jesus, through your spirit, that the Father might be glorified, that your good news message may go forward, that people would turn their eyes to Jesus and not look to the things of the world, but to, to Jesus and believe. And that we, in the power of the Spirit, might have the wisdom to know how to point people at every turn to the glorious message of the gospel. We pray these things in, in your power alone and not in our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, there's three, there are three parts to this sermon. The first part is the context. What's law got to do with it? Uh, this is not, I'm not going to break out into any Tina Turner singing here, um, but what's law got to do with it? There's a context that's very important to understand these four verses. So before getting into the text, there, I, wa- I, wanna, I want to help you understand a bit more about the context and why an understanding the role of the law is necessary or, or what Paul was speaking about as he talked about the law. So Paul uh, is writing to Roman Christians in the year most likely 57 AD is the time of this, this letter being written and then sent. And he's doing it from the city of Corinth. Uh, their church in Rome had likely started in around 34 AD uh, when Roman Jews who would have been present at Pentecost were transformed by Jesus. And then they returned to Rome just with excitement in their heart and they, they began the first church in Rome. Now, as the movement grew in Rome, there were Gentiles that were joining rank. And, and then... As time went on, uh, the Roman emperors got more word and got more attention on what was going on in this uh, converted Jewish sect uh, of Christians, and they, they didn't love it. They didn't love what was going on. And they identified the Christians as, as Jewish people. And around 49 AD, uh, one particular emperor, Claudius, exiled the Jews from Rome, and the church in Rome, this, this little body of believers almost instantaneously became predominantly Gentile. It was once mixed, and it almost instantaneously became Gentile because of this edict of Claudius. So among those who were exiled, um, uh, among the Jews who were exiled, were the famous Priscilla and Aquila, who fled to Corinth. And that's where they most likely met Paul for the first time. And that's how Paul knows something of the Roman church. And that is why Paul is writing to mostly Gentile Christians. 
Okay, so Paul's writing to the Roman church to mostly Jew, excuse me, mostly Gentile Christians. But if you were to read through the book of Romans, and particularly chapter 9, the immediate context before the text that we're looking at, Paul emphasizes his own Jewishness. He emphasizes his burden for his countrymen, his respect for the Jewish lineage through which the law and the promises and, and the Messiah come. Why would he do this? Why, why would he care? Why not just focus on giving them some, some great teaching about how to live their lives as Gentile Christians living in the Roman Empire, in the city of Rome? Well, in part, I think what Paul's doing, in part, what he's doing is he's showing that Christianity was not born on Christmas Day. It is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan to redeem. As Christians, we have a heritage that traces all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But more specifically, he's showing the reason and the role of the law. The law was never meant to be a ladder which we climb in order to reach redemption, to borrow from John Piper. That's his, his phrase, his imagery. If it was, if the law was a ladder, then the ladder was too short by at least about 100 billion rungs. This is why Paul says in chapter 9, verse 6, it isn't God's word that failed, Because in Eden, our history, remember, traces all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Eden, God gave his word. It was a law. It was a law to guide man. Don't eat the fruit. And man rejected it. It wasn't the word that failed. Man did. So the same thing happened again, and you see this as Paul develops this thought in chapter 9. The same thing happens as the fuller law is given to Moses. It was man who failed before the law, not the other way around. And Paul continues to sharpen this point in in chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. Forming the Jews was part of God's redemptive plan to show his redeeming mercy. So even Moses, the one who received the cyanide code, the ten big ones, even his life was not primarily about law. It was about mercy. It's about the mercy of God. Moses was Moses because God intended to show his mercy through this bumbling man called Moses. Everything boils down to the mercy and grace of God. Because of that, Paul ends chapter 9 saying, God's people are not defined by receiving or keeping the law. God's people are those who receive his grace and his mercy. Righteous behavior will never save. But the Jews, they had twisted the law. They tried to earn a place before God through obedience. They adopted what I would call little engine theology. They thought they could, they thought they could, they thought they could, but they never arrived at the top of righteousness's hill. Instead, the law that they were pursuing actually became damnation for them. Meanwhile, these dirty Gentiles, they they weren't even trying, and they get to be called righteous? How can this be? Well, it's only the mercy of God. Look at chapter 10 as we get into chapter 10 now. Before the verses, just immediately before the verses we're looking at today, chapter 10 ratches this up. Yes, Jews have a zeal for God, but not According to knowledge. 
This phrase, not according to knowledge, doesn't mean they lack information or capacity. Like, I am without the knowledge of how to do heart surgery. If any of you stocked up on fried foods last night and has some sort of heart event today, I am without the knowledge. I may be zealous to see you do okay, but please keep the knives away from me, okay? I am without the knowledge on how to help you. I don't, it's not in my wheelhouse, right? That's not, that's not what this phrase means about not being without, or being, uh, having zeal but without knowledge. Chapter 9 actually teaches us that. It made, it makes it clear to us that the Jews had every advantage to understand the plan. So they were, they were given revelation. They were given knowledge. But they had a zeal without a certain type of knowledge. So Paul's getting at something here. Zeal, but not according to knowledge, is more like someone who smokes habitually. They smoke in ignorance, not according to knowledge. When, when we say they smoke in ignorance, does that mean that they don't know that cigarettes are bad for their health? No. They, they have a degree of knowledge, but that knowledge has no effect in their life. They ignore the truth. They ignore what is going to ha- happen, what the effects are of not acting on the knowledge that cigarettes are bad for their health. They ignore, in other words, what has been revealed to them. This is a little bit more akin to what the phrase is of what Paul's saying. They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. They don't live in the good of the knowledge, the the revelation that has been given to them. They instead ignore it. See, one aspect of the law is that it reveals we are only saved by his mercy. The Old Testament alone reveals that. We we did not need Jesus to come in order for that message to be clearly signaled throughout the plan of God. Before the giving of the New Testament, before the coming of Jesus, it was clear in the Old Testament that the only way to be okay with God is because God is a merciful God. It is not by your behavior, but is by the mercy and kindness of God. But the Jews ignored God's merciful overtures. They preferred religion and effort over humbly accepting mercy. You know, Gentiles, we are no better. (laughs) For those of us who have no Jewish heritage in our our lineage, Gentiles are no better. Paul made that very clear in chapter 3. We all insidiously reject the king. We are all rebels to the core. Whether you are of Jewish or Gentile lineage, same problem, world over. Every single human being that breathes air into their lungs and expels it out has the same problem. We reject God. So here's the point. Here's the point of what Paul's making leading up to our text. Religion is seemingly moral, but it is a treacherous rejection of the king. Religion tries to sneak our efforts in. It tries to move redemption out of God's gracious and merciful hands and into our grubby little glory-seeking midst. Praise God That Jesus, chapter 10, verse 4, is the end of the law for all who believe. He fulfills, he brings to completion. And the law's condemning power has no grasp over those who belong to Jesus. He ends the curse of religion. And the only way to access this reality is to trust him. 
Put your hope in his perfect life that satisfied all of the law's demands and his substitutionary death where he bore the punishment that we deserve and his glorious resurrection which resounds his victory over sin and death. Brothers and sisters, as simple as this message is, as much as you hear this proclaimed over and over from this very pulpit, thank the Lord for that, do not ever jettison or lose the marvel and the wonder and the importance of this central message. We get okay with God by trusting, not by doing, but by trusting in one who kept the law in our stead. From first to last, only by faith are we saved. From the United States to Italy to China to Africa to Chile and every place in the globe, Right standing is open to all who call on the name of the Lord, only by placing faith in him. So salvation, in other words, it's not far off. You don't have to work hard to get there. Salvation is just a call away. But how does this happen? How do we, how does anyone call on the name of the Lord? That's the second portion of this text. Paul explains the mechanics of the gospel advance with a a series of rhetorical questions that we read. How can people call on him if they don't believe in him? Well, good question, but how can they believe in him if they haven't even heard of him? Oh, another good question. But, but, but how can they hear of, hear of him if nobody actually preaches about him? And how can anybody preach if they aren't sent? Far-off people are only saved by calling on Jesus in faith, having heard the gospel from those who announce that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's, that's the mechanics. That's the way it works. That's God's plan for how the gospel gets out there into the world. And again, the main point of this text is the gospel spreads as redeemed people are sent to preach salvation through faith in Jesus. So in verse 16, Paul says, not everyone obeys the gospel. Now he's reminding us, lest we trust our preaching savvy, that all we need to do is be really good gospel preachers and then the world is evangelized and the world just turns to Jesus, right? If, if we just get really good at preaching the gospel, is that the message? No. Unless, so, so that we don't trust in ourselves, even in our missional efforts, Paul reminds us not everybody is going to obey the gospel. Salvation is dependent not on your effectiveness in preaching the gospel, not on your ability to be a really good evangelist. Salvation is always only dependent on the mercy of God. And there's a little wordplay going on in there. Do you see it? Obey the gospel. He's just talking about the law, and it's not by obedience that you get okay. But then he says, not everybody obeys the gospel. What's he doing there? See, obedience is to comply with a law, right? And and Paul uses obeying to indicate this idea of submitting to a, a different sort of law. It's not a law that we keep in order to scale the heights to get up to God. It's It's a law of grace. It's a rule of law of grace. In other words, this is not submit to a law so as to merit acceptance the way the Jews had been living, but it is submit to and accept unmerited grace. 
submit to and accept that you will only be okay when you recognize that you cannot ever do anything to be okay. You must only submit and accept and, and, and take and believe and put all of your weight, all of your, what you count on for being okay with God, fully resting fully only in, on, in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Now, don't think for a minute that what Paul is saying is that how we live doesn't matter. Some may take this and be like, okay, so if it's only based on faith and our efforts and our obedience, if, that, if, if us obeying the law doesn't really matter and our standing before God, then it doesn't matter how we live. That is not Paul's teaching. That is not the teaching of Scripture. It does matter how we live. Obedience does matter. But what Paul's saying here is the same grace that transforms us, saves us, excuse me, the same grace that saves us also transforms us to desire to obey with thanksgiving and to the praise of God's glory. So, in other words, the same grace that saves us is the very grace that empowers us to obey God's good and beautiful law. So the gospel proclaimed... The good news that you cannot get okay with God by your efforts, that gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ proclaimed, what it does is it mortally stabs the vile beast of religion in the heart from first to last and makes us righteous in standing and increasingly so in our followership of Jesus. It is the gospel that not only saves us but transforms us from first to last. And it is through preaching that the faith to call on Jesus enters into our hearts from outside of us as a gift by God's spirit. We do, faith does not arise from within us. Faith is a gift imparted to us as the gospel is preached and the spirit of God opens our eyes to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. Now look at this little insertion from Paul. He, he, he places his teaching in the context of Isaiah 52 and 53 with this insertion where he, he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And, and Lord, who has believed what, they, what he has heard uh, from us? That's, that, those verses, these, uh, these verses that Paul inserts into Romans chapter 10, they are, they are famous they come from famous chapters about the comfort of salvation with the prophecy of the suffering servant in, in play. He was wounded for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquity. The Messiah who in our, in our place stood condemned so we can be forgiven. This is, this is what Paul's referencing, these chapters. Why is he doing this? Well, it's because the preaching of the good news cannot be Jesus will make you feel better. Jesus will make your life better. Jesus will become your buddy. Jesus will increase your positivity and give you better mental health. The proclamation of good news necessitates that we preach a slaughtered lamb wounded for our transgressions. This is literally eternal life or death. If we adjust the message to be something other than Jesus Christ crucified in order to open the lavish channel of God's grace, what we have done is we have given people lies that press them toward hell. It is only beautiful 
The preaching of the gospel is only beautiful when we stay in the lane of Golgotha that says we are sinful, trapped in a prison of our own making, and we can only be released by looking to the lamb pierced and punished for us. You cannot crawl out with religion or with goodness. You cannot crawl out with philosophy. You cannot crawl out with ignorance or existential experience. You Atheists cannot crawl out. Religious people cannot crawl out. The only way to crawl out of the miserable existence that we put ourselves in by sinning against a perfect and holy God is by looking to the one who was pierced in our stead. The infinite weight can only be lifted by an infinitely perfect Savior. So anyone who is sent to preach must press forward in every step by shining the light on the once crucified, now risen Christ. That's that's the only good news gospel message. In other words, we don't go out to extend a brand. We didn't We didn't move to Italy because, you know, Sovereign Grace is looking to expand their territory and they need a franchise somewhere in Europe. That's that's not why you plant. You don't plant. Who cares about Sovereign Grace's territory? We have no territory. No denomination has any territory. The whole earth belongs to the Lord. We are servants that we go into this earth with a burden to see dead people live. And the only way dead people live is by preaching that the good news that you can come to life by turning from sin and trusting in the one who died in your place. And Paul says, it is beautiful that people preach this good news. More specifically, he, he pulls this verse out of Isaiah, which I got to just admit, it, it has always seemed strange to me that he pu- pulled this verse. Why did he pull, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? When Robin and I were dating, there was one point where I think I was either barefoot or wearing flip-flops, and she saw my feet, and she was, she was, I, I know what you're thinking as you fill in that blank. She was hooked for life. She saw my beautiful feet and she was like, I don't know, she's got this weird thing about like gnarly toes. And she's like, if you had bad feet, I don't know that I could have married you. She is not a shallow person. If you know anything about Robin, being married to me for 25 years, it is clear she is not a shallow person. But she does have this weird thing about feet and she saw my feet and she's like, he'll do, he'll do. So she's been with me for 25 years. I'm her guy. Why? Because I have beautiful feet. Now, that was not some sort of prophetic impression that Robin had. Oh, he's got beautiful feet. Maybe someday he'll be a preacher. Uh, No, obviously this text has nothing to do about pretty feet. So why does Paul bring this text to light when he's talking about the gospel, the importance of the gospel going forward? Think about ancient life for just a minute. To get from place to place in the arid desert wearing sandals, a preacher would travel rough and dirty terrain. And their, their little piggies would get pretty dinged up and pretty disgusting, right? What makes feet beautiful is that they, they, they carry a preacher who values the outcome of the gospel above self-interest. They, they value 
the good news message more than not getting dirty. And you know what? To preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to to get into other people's lives and, and carry the good news message to other people, it can be a dirty endeavor. It will be a dirty endeavor. To, to get to those who are dying, we must go through dirt. It's not always pleasant, and it's certainly not likely to be easy. But this was Jesus' pattern, wasn't it? He left the purity of heaven, and he entered into the dirt of this world. Why? Grace and mercy to rescue us. So this leads then to the third part of this, this sermon. Does that mean that I should go somewhere? Is that what this text is saying? That, that I should go do something with this? Well, there are many, many applications to this text. And before we get into that particular question, the primary meaning of this text, the primary application of this text, for, and actually of every text of Scripture, is to call on Jesus. Let's not skip that. The main point of this text is call on Jesus. Anybody who is not a believer here in this room, who has not yet trusted in Jesus, anybody who does not have the assurance that you are okay with Jesus, that your sin is not being held over your head, and that you don't need to work in order to be okay with God, but you can simply have a relationship with God and be forgiven and free for eternity, welcomed into his presence, you can do that today simply by calling on the name of Jesus, by trusting his perfect life, his death in your place, and his resurrection over your sin and your curse of death so that you might be forgiven and free. That's the primary application of every text of scripture and of this one. So if you do not have a personal faith in Jesus Christ, brother, sister, come to Jesus and call on him and know forgiveness. And you will be saved. That's the promise of this text. Everyone, not, not everyone who came from a certain type of family, was educated a certain type of way, was born in a certain area of the world. will No, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. In other words, you don't need to do anything other than humbly accept his work and follow him as your king. Now, for those of us in this room who are Christians, who have already trusted in Jesus, I think there are two other implications that I want to focus us on that are related to our call to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ. The first implication that comes with an application is that people won't hear without redeemed people going out and proclaiming. In other words... If the gospel is to go forward in Souderton and in the North Penn area, it means Christians need to speak it. Those who have been redeemed, those who have received the good news, need to share the good news. That's God's plan. We're it. It would be easy to say that this text is just for professionals. Well, this text is about sending professional people out. Now, certainly, there is a place for those who are formally sent. We were sent by our family of churches, including in partnership, including partnership with this local church to go and preach the gospel. And there is a a real desperate darkness and need where we are um, 
we are, where we live, where we were positioned with support and, 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 and finances and relational support and counsel and friendship and, and above all of these things, the prayer of the saints. So we are grateful. Thank you. Thank you for your care and your partnership with us. Keep sending people into all of the world. It's a necessary thing. And, and by it, you, Grace Community Church, are reaching into places that you don't live in order to make Jesus known to people who you might not meet until you see them in heaven. And it glorifies God. And I want you to know that we take seriously the call, of the importance of representing you well as we build relationships with people in our neighborhood. But, but I want to zoom into us here in this room because in many ways, mo- most ways even, I would say our lives in Italy don't look a whole lot different than our lives did here in America or than your lives do here in America. We go about our business. We build relationship with people. Sure, for us, there's some church stuff that we do as we set the foundation of a church plant in place. But we go to the soccer fields. We go to talk with our neighbors. We go and talk with classmates. And we even do the churchy stuff. And we all do, we do all these things because it's an important structure around the main thing. And I hope that's true for you too, that there's a, a main thing. And the main thing is announcing the good news. The main thing is the proclamation of the gospel. So our lives in Italy and our lot, and your life in America, it, it looks a whole lot alike. You too go to work. You, you go to your kids' sports. You go to the market and you're constantly rubbing shoulders with family and friends. Uh, who haven't yet called on the name of Jesus. In other words, I think it's pretty clear in Scripture that all of us as believers in receiving the gospel of Jesus also receive a commission. We too are also sent right where we live. You don't need to necessarily go anywhere because we are all where God has sent us. And we are there to announce salvation. So yes, let me, let me be clear. Keep giving, keep praying, keep sending people to other places. Without your giving, without your support, people like me couldn't be reaching into my neighborhood in Torino, Italy. But without you, your coworker, your neighbor, your family member, your friend couldn't hear the good news right where you live. You are commissioned by the king and you are entrusted with the most powerful life-changing message possible. So as a redeemed person, you have everything that you need in order to have beautiful feet. So this leads to the second implication. We will confront religious resistance. People live in dirt, religious dirt. And many people think that religion is a kind of soap needed to clean oneself. Now, others intuitively know that religion gets you nowhere and they reject it in, uh, a diff- in favor of a different kind of religion, a, a religion of self-law. You know, thinking like atheist, agnostic, like I, I jettison all that stuff. That's, uh, that's another kind of religion. Let's just be honest. It's still a self-focus. What do I do in order to realize my, uh, my, my, my goals for my life. And, and obviously there are, there are religion religions, the big ones like Islam and Buddhism. And, and then, as I said, there's atheism and existentialism and all of these things. They're all worldviews. They're all ways of viewing how do I go about my life. 
And where we live, we live with this sort of religiousness masquerading as Christian in Italy. So 90-some percent of the population claims to be Christian, Roman Catholic, and less than maybe half percent, certainly less than 1% of the population actually knows the gospel. And this is why we moved to Italy, to proclaim the good news to people bound under the spell of dead religious law. It is a country masquerading as Christian. So we moved to make known the free and lavish grace of Jesus. So when sharing the good news of Jesus with others, we'll, we'll often talk with people um, who are well-informed enough, like the Jews, but they th- and, and they think they understand Jesus, right? They think, well, he's, he's just this head of this religion, just like Buddha or Muhammad. And the main obstacle that we face, in, in Italy at least, is as we go to our neighbors and, and into our workplaces and, and into the, the marketplaces, the main obstacle we face is religiousness, What do I mean by that? It's this belief that to be okay with God, I have to do certain things. Or that a relationship with God is based on me doing certain things. And actually, that's what atheists believe about a relationship. If God were to exist, that's about a bunch of laws. So when we announce Jesus, and this is true here in this area, and, and here's the reason I'm sharing this message here in this area with an incredible heritage of Christian faith. W- wonderful people. I mean, for goodness, for goodness sake, the, the, I think the headquarters of one of the Mennonite denominations is here in Franconia, right? So there's this, there's a heritage. There's, you can feel it in this area. There are people that just, they have, they have been taught the scriptures for years. However, just because there's a wonderful heritage, don't mistake the fact that there are a lot of people who don't know the gospel. They know a religious law. They have heard teaching that causes them to believe a religious law is the way that we get to God. So, Souderton, Pennsylvania and Torino, Italy are probably actually more similar than any of us may have initially thought. People are walking around with this thought, I have to do what, what law do I have to do to be okay with God? You know, I was, I was reading in my quiet time not too long ago, and I was in Acts, and I read about the Philippian jailer, and it just like jumped off the page at me. Like, I don't think I ever caught it, because I always thought of like, like wow, what a wonderful statement from the Philippian jailer, but his heart is revealed. His, his misunderstanding is revealed. What did he say? He said, what do I need to do in order to be saved? You remember Paul and Silas's response? Believe. He didn't say, here's some laws now you need to do. Stop, stop following all the pagan ways. Now adopt all these new laws. That's not what they gave him. They gave, they gave him hope, good news. Believe in one. And this has become so clear to me over this past year. People are so interested to know why an American would move into, to Italy, this very religious country. And as I unpack our story, the same thing happens every time. As an evangelical pastor, can you get married and have kids? Do you have to go to church every week? Are you allowed to drink alcohol? Can you smoke? Can you celebrate Halloween? I've heard um, evangelicals can't celebrate Halloween. Can you celebrate Halloween? What about LGBTQ plus people? Can they come to your church? When you start your church, are are they going to be allowed to come to your church? 
question after question after question, and it's the same questions you get when you're sharing with unbelieving people, right? They're law questions. What do you need to do? What is, what is your code? What is your, what is your moral law? What, is, what, what guides you as, as a law in order to be okay with God? And even those, maybe especially those who grew up with familiarity with the church are asking these kinds of questions. I look back at the time when I lived here and I'm surprised how often I overlooked the power of religion to deafen the ears of those I was sharing my faith with here in Lansdale when we lived in Lansdale in the Souderton area. Now you likely agree with everything I'm saying, right? But what I'm trying to press home is that religion's dark webs are entrapping people right under our nose. And we must take it gravely seriously. Don't assume Moral people that live around you with good Sunday school answers are okay. If they, if they aren't truly Christians, the most morally religious person in this, in, in, in the same, is in the same place before God is the most wicked person who's ever walked on this earth. And the Lord has been pressing this application into my heart, particularly over this last year and a half that everything, 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 every conversation I have with somebody as I'm seeking to share the good news of Jesus Christ must come back not to the law, but to the gospel. That's the only hope. Our message is not become part of the moral majority. Follow my way of voting. Practice life my way. This this coming year, as you're getting into the election cycle, you are going to have this. I remember this very well. It wasn't long ago that we lived in America. The, 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 the talk about elections and politics, people, there's this anxiety in America that everything that happens in Washington affects whether or not the church is going to be okay, whether or not our country is going to be okay. People look to Washington as the savior. And and when Christians open their mouth and start giving opinions about politics, I'm not saying it's not important, we can miss the fact that we're informing people that, yeah, our hope is in politics too, if, if we're not careful. So, so too often, we as Christians have been guilty of spreading morality rather than the good news. And I just confess, I have gotten tied up in knots explaining why premarital sex or abortion or evolution are wrong. Now, these are important topics. I might even die to defend a biblical view in these areas. But you know what? Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens, they're doing a fine job of arguing for moral causes. And you know what? By my reckoning, none of their arguing is saving, saving anyone. So this I can say for sure. I would die and even sacrifice my loved ones if necessary. I pray it's not, it never is. But I would, I would die and sacrifice even my own loved ones to make clear that Jesus is the king who died on the cross and he is the only hope to be okay with God. What must I do? Not do. Believe. Don't believe a political worldview. Don't be a moral person. Believe on Jesus. See, because faith, saving faith, it only comes through hearing and hearing through the proclamation of the word of Christ. So brothers and sisters, stand on that promise. Stand on the promise that some will respond. Not everyone will obey the gospel. Paul says that clearly here. But some will. 
When you preach the gospel, when you proclaim, when you share, when you get to know what's going on in somebody's life, in their world, and you get in the dirt with them, and you understand that they're relating to God on law, and this is the kind of law, and you ask questions, and you, you try and understand more and more, what, are the, what is it that they're trying to do to be okay with God? And you gently remove that obstacle and say, you don't need to do that to be okay with God. You simply believe, and you're down in the dirt with them, Your feet become beautiful to them because you have brought to them the good news that frees them from the bondage of thinking that somehow I can do something to make my life okay with God. And instead they say, I don't need to do anything. Just believe, just trust in Jesus. You can have confidence that as you share that message, it will bear fruit. So in light of that, to those whom you are sent, Focus the attention on Jesus. Keep going back to the gospel. Don't let political debates and moral um, discussions become the entree of your discussion. Turn to the gospel. Now, of course, I think we should answer questions about what the Bible teaches on various subjects, and we should do that without blushing. And, And often, keep in mind that when people are asking questions like, should, can somebody from the LGBTQ plus community come to your church? There's there's, there's freight in that. There's a reason they're asking that question. It's an important question. And we need to be thoughtful and biblical in how we answer and how we encourage the graciousness of why we invite people, no matter where their background is, to come and be part of our, 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 our church communities as they turn their life to walking with Jesus. And we need to be thoughtful about why we answer things about why we believe abortion is wrong and why we don't believe evolution is a right worldview. We need to be thoughtful about those things. But in every one of those conversations, what God is giving you is an opportunity. When they ask those questions that are law-based questions, God is giving you an opportunity to turn their attention away from the law that they think is, is governing to the gospel that is freeing. Bring it back to Jesus over and over. I I use phrases like this. Um, You know, if I could convince you of my thought on X subject, abortion, LGBTQ issues, alcohol, whatever, if I could convince you of my worldview on that, that'd be wonderful for you to think like me, but you know that does not make you okay with God, and that's not the message of Christianity. I want you to know that as important these things are, Christianity does speak into these things, but the message of Christianity is not about those things. The message of Christianity is not a new law. The message of Christianity is the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ given to us. So I use phrases like that with people. There's this one lady that uh, she's the mom of uh, a teammate of my son's. And um, she is just asking question after question. She actually invited her 23-year-old daughter, who's also from an engineering background, to, to come and to meet with me so that we could come and we, had, we could discuss the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you be willing to meet with me and discuss the gospel and, and talk about what it is that you believe? I'm like, yeah, would I, would I be willing? That's the whole reason I moved thousands of miles. Yes, of course I'd be willing. But she's asking these questions she wants to know. And, and, and I'm, I'm very aware that I have to be very careful to not just give her a new set of laws. She comes from a very Roman Catholic background and believes that the, the, the church and the tradition of the church is that law is what's going to save her. So I have to be very careful to make it clear. Yeah, if I believe the same thing as you or I believe something different than you, 
That's not the center of Christianity. The center of Christianity is it's not your laws and your law keeping that saved you. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. Have phrases like that in your back pocket, ready to share, ready to bridge the gap from that, that question, that discussion about the law into the gospel of Jesus. In other words, at every turn, and again, like I said, this is a simple message. Nothing surprising here, but here, here's what we do. We give them Jesus. Earth-shattering, right? How do people get saved? We give them Jesus. We tell them the grace of Jesus. We share our story, how we receive grace. And over and over, we just take them back over and over, away from the law, away from obedience and, and morality and worldviews and politics, and we take them to the free, merciful grace of the Savior who came to rescue them. See, that's what will kill religiousness and kill the stranglehold of morality and law-keeping that keeps people away from a real, true relationship with Jesus. And that's the thing that will actually transform people in, in our world, our neighbors, our family members, to be, to be people who follow after Jesus with the whole of their hearts. In our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, here in, in, in Souderton, in Italy, wherever it may be, the task is the same persevere in proclaiming the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are the sent ones. The gospel spreads as redeemed people are sent to preach salvation through faith in Jesus. And I couldn't be more grateful that we get to do this together. Uh, Our family, our little church family in Torino, we are thankful to you for sending us, for partnering with us, for praying for us. And and I pray that we here together in this In this location, in Torino, and all over the earth, do not stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ until we see him face to face. And many are joined at our side, worshiping him for his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that uh, we don't need to come up with a message or some methods or some new law in order to be um, savvy and in order to be effective. We have in the, the simple and yet incredibly deeply profound message of Jesus Christ the most powerful, the most world and life-changing message that is possible. So, Lord, help us to put all of our confidence day by day by day back on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would give us opportunities and, and awareness of how to, to turn every conversation that we have with people who are uh, investigating or resisting us because of religiousness and because of a belief that they need to work their way to God. We pray that you would give us the understanding and the sensitivity to know how to turn every conversation back to the free and lavish grace and mercy of Jesus. And we pray this because we have received it and we are grateful for it. And we pray that you would be glorified in our sharing of the gospel, in our, in our growing in the gospel, and our desire to build churches on the gospel. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.